So good to be with you this morning again. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, let me invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 9. We're going to be back in our study in John here for the next three weeks. Then we'll take a brief break, about a week or so. And then we'll be back in this fall with uh, what's called the Upper Room Discourse. It's a great study in John. I'm excited to be back in this gospel after a summer in Genesis. And I'm looking forward to diving in. So John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. If you happen to need a copy of Scripture, raise your hand. Our ushers will bring you one. Receive that as another gift uh, from us to you on top of the sticker. And uh, we'd love for you to take that home uh, and read it, and it'll change your life. So uh, the last several weeks around here at Cornerstone have met a bit of transition for our staff. And, and with that, we've swapped some office spaces once again. And, and if you'd ever been in my office, you'd know this. Uh, let's just say it needed a woman's touch, all right? <laughs> it's a little bit of a mess sometimes, I admit that. Uh, the last time I changed offices, Christy and I sort of ran out of time and energy, and so I was left there on a Monday morning, and I thought, I got all these pictures and all these things, and let's just chuck them up on the walls and get to work. And so that's what I did, right? And uh, it, it showed, it showed. Uh, but this time, Christy and I talked about it a little bit in advance, and uh, she graciously uh, agreed to come in with me for a few hours on a Sunday afternoon. And so we sat there, and I was kind of in heaven, I mean, here I was with my wife in my office. It was great. And uh, we're, we're, we're putting stuff up on the walls and we're doing things. And we got done and I thought, I really like this. I like having a clean office. I think it's the first time in my life, maybe, that that's happened. And so I was excited about it. And I thought, I, I was so excited about it, I wanted to show you around just a little bit today, okay? I know it sounds a little self-serving. Stay with me here, okay? But I want to show you some of the stuff that we were able to put up in my office. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. So if you'll indulge me, uh, let me invite you to watch the screen. With audio, with if that, that brought back from the Middle Eastern country I just visited, and it reminds me to pray for the people there. Instead of pointed to Mecca, though, it's pointed to heaven. And so I'm praying to the Lord for the people that I met and for those unreached places. Behind me here, I have a picture of It Is Well With My Soul, signed by a bunch of people from a ministry that I was in. It's a special memory, a special place. Back here, I have a carved elephant that my parents brought back from Indonesia when they visited my sister there. And, and so I, I get to remember my sister when I see that elephant behind me. I have a guitar that I used to lead worship with and still do once in a while, and a shepherd's staff that the Forest Lakes District gave me when I first came here to Cornerstone, a special memory. Behind me here, I have a globe that I bought in Beijing, China, visiting my brother uh, over 20 years ago when Christy and I were there, and uh, that's a special place, a special time. Over here, I have a fun picture of my dad and my brother and I as we finally caught more than one or two walleyes, and we did it intentionally. We read some magazines, and we got excited. We got the gear. We, we went out out in June and we actually caught fish and so that was a big deal a momentous occasion for us that started an addiction I suppose in a variety of ways back here I have my my credentials with the free church as well as my seminary degree that represents a lot of blessing and a lot of hard work and I'm grateful for those over here I've got my family and uh, of course I love my family Connor Carson Kaylin and Christy and what a blessing they are to us and to me and I love it that they're displayed here in my office and then I've got my boys fishing in a special place up in Canada my dad goes with us sometimes, and we have a great time there. Here, a, a wonderful hunt, hunt up in Alberta with some friends shooting moose and hunting moose. That was great. And then here, a bear hunt up in Saskatchewan, as well as uh, shooting a turkey with a friend here in Wisconsin. And what a blessing that is. And, and then over here, I've got the things that make Cornerstone tick, our mission and our vision frame and our values. And so that keeps it in front of me every day. Friends, thanks for looking at my office and seeing some of the things that matter to me that I have on display here. 
So what do you put in your places of display? What, what matters to you? Maybe it's pictures of your family. Uh, maybe it's uh, some of your sewing or your artwork. Maybe you're a photographer and you enjoy displaying some of that. Maybe you have a special place you go to in the summer and in the dead of winter, it's January, it's February, it's cold here, and you're thinking, oh man, if I could only be there, at least I can look at a picture. That's a good thing. Uh, maybe you got a high school letter or a diploma or something like that. What, what do you display in those places that matter to you? And, and I think that's an interesting question, but I also have a, a, another question for us today. What does God delight to display? I mean, uh, if God had an office here at Cornerstone, what would He put in it? Uh, if God had an office, what things would He put on display? And I think the answer might surprise us just a little bit. And as we go back to our study in the Gospel of John this morning, I want to remind us of where we've been. We're going to answer that question, but let's go back first. You might remember last May we wrapped up with a passage from John chapter 8 where, where Jesus and the religious elite were duking it out over issues of his identity. Remember that word duking? That's a theological word. I hope you remember it. I worked really hard to, to teach that to you, all right? Uh, but, but they were working, it, working out Jesus' identity. And ironically, as we studied the faith of Abraham this last summer, and as these summer, and as the religious elite sort of make this claim that, hey, we're the children of Abraham, not Jesus, we find out the utter fallacy of that claim. The, these, these Pharisees had not the faith of Abraham. Jesus uh, is a far better representative. Now, in addition to that, you might remember that the setting for chapters 7 and 8 was during a feast. Uh, the, the Israelites had major feasts throughout the year, and one of those feasts was the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? Uh, also known as the Feast of Booths, not the Feast of Booze, as I was accused of, uh, of teaching once. <laughs> Where for seven days, uh, the, the priest would pour out water from the Pool of Siloam, and it would be this reminder of God's provision for the people in the wilderness. God, God bringing forth water from the rock in their time of need. And, and in that setting, it's where Jesus makes one of my favorite claims that He makes in all of Scripture. John 7, 37 and 38, He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's this gorgeous, beautiful claim, and, and Jesus substantiates that in so many ways. Now, if that weren't incredible enough, the, the feast was also the ceremony where every night during the seven-day period, the priests would light these massive 75-foot candelabras, and it would light up the Jerusalem sky, and everybody would see it for miles around. And it's in that setting that in eight verse, chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. See, uh, the, the, the lights, the candelabras, they represent God leading the people through the wilderness during their time of trial with pillars of fire. But here I am, I'm replacing those. I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's where we've been here in our study in John. And now today we come to chapter 9. And we don't know the exact chronology, we don't know the exact details, but clearly the progression in the narrative from where we've been dovetails with where we're going. And I think you're going to see that today. Remember Jesus' claim. He says, I am the light of the world. Watch what happens next. Look at this with me. John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says this, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? <laughs> who sinned? Now, church, isn't this amazing? Jesus has just made the claim to be the light of the world. And wouldn't you know who shows up? Here's a man who comes to him. He, he comes across this man who has no access to light. In fact, he can't even see his hand in front of his face. 
Never has been able to. And the disciples, they, they raise an interesting question here, one, one that we might, we might be tempted to ask as well, and I understand it. Why was this man born blind? Why did this bad thing happen to him? I mean, what's the purpose in his suffering? Because to be blind in the first century was to suffer, no doubt. Have you ever asked a question of God like that? God, what's up with this? Why am I hurting here? Why me? Why this diagnosis for me? Why my, my spouse? Why my children? Why am I suffering? And it begs the broader question, what's the place of poverty according to God? What is the place of, of poverty according to God? I mean, why do people like this man suffer in the ways that they do? And the disciples' question reflects a prevailing thought amongst the Jewish community of the first century. See, according to, to their tradition, according to their thinking, somebody must have sinned. Somebody must have blown it. God would clearly never allow suffering like this otherwise. So who was it? And they posed the question to Jesus. And they thought, you know, it could be the man himself. Okay? Their, their theology allowed for sin in utero. Okay? And we could talk about that. It's not, not worth it. But they, they could have allowed for that. But they also thought, and even more likely thought, it's likely the parents who sinned, and they passed down their sin and the consequence of their sin to this man who was born blind. And yet, there's this underlying tension in the question. See, I don't think they would have asked it of Jesus if it wasn't something that caused them some consternation because they weren't satisfied with the answer. I think these men knew so many people where it just didn't make sense. They knew people that were walking around on two feet having practiced infidelity who, who according to their tradition, ought to have suffered greater consequences while at the same time, people that are, are innocent, at least according to their thinking, were suffering greatly and it just wasn't congruent. It didn't make sense. And so you can, you can imagine their anticipation as they finally have the opportunity to ask their rabbi this pressing question. And listen to what they ask. Listen to what Jesus answers. Verse 3, he answers, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. <laughs> Friends, here's the thing. Yes, God sometimes allows illness. He allows suffering, disablement, all kinds of things. He sometimes allows those things for His disciplinary purpose, right? Hebrews 12 says God disciplines those that He loves. Sometimes He allows these kinds of things in order to discipline His children. John 5, 14, even from the gospel here, makes clear that the, the lame man by the pool of Bethesda meets, meets the criteria. Jesus said to this man, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. It's implied there. The man was under discipline. God sometimes disciplines through maladies, but that doesn't mean that all physical malady is a result of God's discipline. Jesus makes clear here, look, th this man's blindness is neither a result of his sin nor of his parents' sin. Sin has nothing to do with it for this man. And so we're back to the question, why? <laughs> why did God allow this man to be born blind? Well, Jesus answers in verse 3. He says that the works of God might be displayed in him. And church, you want to know what God puts in his office? <laughs> he puts pictures of his glory displayed through our brokenness. He puts jars of clay with cracks in them, <laughs> shining brightly with His own glory. Church, God delights in displaying His work through us. 
F.F. Bruce says, God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when the child grew to manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ, and others, seeing this work of God, might turn to the true light of the world. Church, God delights in bringing glory from garbage, beauty from brokenness, power from pain, hope from the horrendous, comfort from curse. That's what God does. That's what He cares about. And so His display case is full of people who demonstrate that. God delights in displaying His glory through brokenness, church. And this reflects an important principle. See, when we think of our poverty, poverty we're, we're tempted to think of a lot of things. We're, we're tempted to think about its pointlessness. You know, poverty, uh, pain, sorrow, all these things, it's just pointless. It doesn't matter. This world is a mess and it's broken and I don't know what meaning there is in it. Or, or we think about God's vindictiveness. God must be a mean God if He allows all these things to happen. Or, or we, we think it's evidence of God not, not caring, being distant from us, or maybe even not existing. We blame suffering on just the random you know, uh, survival of the fittest that Darwin talked about. But friends, in the hands of Jesus, our poverty is God's display case. That's the principle. It's the opportunity for God to demonstrate that the curse does not have the final word. And that's why Paul can write in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering does something. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Friends, our poverty is God's display case. It's purposeful. Malcolm Muggeridge once said this. He said, I can say with complete truthfulness, that everything I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. You're trying to make sense of your poverty today, your pain, your suffering, your disappointment. Friends, God is going to do something with it. In fact, I'm convinced He's doing something right now you got to wait for it. Wait for Him. God uses our poverty to display His glory. Let's look at this text. Listen to Jesus as He prepares to put His power on display in the midst of the poverty that this blind man, blind man experiences. Verse 4, chapter 9, it says, this is Jesus speaking, we must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, look, we've got work to do while I'm here. I am the light of the world. The Father sent me to push back the darkness. That's why I've come. And in just a short time, the window for the work is going to be complete. I'll be raised to the cross. I'll finish the work that the Father gave me to do. I'll be resurrected and ascend into heaven. We've got work to do during the day. Now's the time. Let's get busy. And so watch what Jesus does. Verse 6. It says, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. I, I laugh a little bit because that's weird to me. We'll talk about that in a minute. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud, and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. That's more palatable, all right? So he went, and he washed, and he came back seeing. <laughs> now, why the gory details here? Why the, why, the, why the spit and the saliva and the mud? Well, we can't be sure exactly but I, I think there's some plausible explanations here. Some theologians recognize that saliva 
from a religious authority, a religious teacher, had healing power, had healing efficacy. And so it's possible that Jesus was saying, hey, I'm a religious teacher here, and so I want you to understand what I do has bearing, has efficacy. I'm able to heal. (laughs) Other people see Jesus scooping up the dirt from the ground, and they remember Genesis 2-7, where it says, then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. There's this creating work that God does here in Genesis 2-7, using the dust of the ground. And here, in this place of brokenness, and in a sin-stained, cursed world, Jesus is doing a recreating work by once again scooping up dust, adding His saliva, His breath, His power to it, and making something beautiful happen. (laughs) And then finally, theologians see John's translation of the meaning of the pool of Siloam as sent. You see that there in the text. John translated as sent. They see that being a reference to Jesus being sent by God to wash away the sins of the people. Jesus was sent by God. And so he sends him, sends this blind man to the pool of Siloam to be made clean. All three explanations, I think, have a lot of merit. And though we might not be able to prove them textually, I think there's a lot going on there. Jesus displays His power. He displays displays His authority to heal. He displays His efficacy as the Messiah to heal this man of His brokenness. And so the text says, the man washed in the pool and he came back with sight. He came back with sight. It's a miracle. And with the mud and the spit in the pool, Jesus further substantiates his claim as the authoritative teacher sent by God as the Son of God to do the recreating work of God that only the Messiah can do, only he can do. You remember why John wrote his gospel? Don't put it up on the screen yet. Anybody remember why John wrote his gospel? This is extra credit, all right? Anybody that wants to come up here and recite it? I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But, but put it up on the screen. This is why John wrote his gospel. Let's say this together. Ready? But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Church, that's why John wrote his gospel. And here the power of Jesus is displayed through this man's poverty, demonstrating His glory and His ability to give life and His ability to reverse the curse such that all who read it such that all who see it might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that they might have life in His name, church. Blind men see when Jesus shows up. Praise God. Now watch what happens next, verse 8. It says, the neighbors and those who had seen Him before as a beggar were saying, is, not the man who used, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is He. And others said, no, but He's like Him. He kept saying, I am the man. (laughs) I'm the man. (laughs) I don't think that's how he intends it, right? (laughs) Can you imagine the excitement? (laughs) This this is the same guy that people in the neighborhood had been seeing for decades, and yet they'd ignored, you know? He was obviously damaged goods. I mean, his sin was shameful. God wouldn't have allowed him to be blind otherwise. He was impure. He was an outcast. He was one of those unmentionables that everybody knew, but no one would acknowledge. And yet now here he is. And everybody's holding up their fingers. How many? (laughs) And he keeps getting it right. 
He keeps saying five and three and two. He knows. He can see. There's no denying it. And they can't believe it. In fact, they're arguing this cannot really be the guy that we've seen in these streets for the last several decades. But he doubles down. He says, no, I'm the guy. I was blind. Now I see. And in their bewilderment, they they ask what we might expect. If it's really you, verse 10, then how were your eyes open? How did this happen? And friends, their question reveals another important principle. And the first part of it is this. When it comes to the things of God, we often fixate on the why and on the how. (laughs) When it comes to the things of God, we often fixate on the why and the how. We get caught up in the details. God, how could this miracle ever happen? God, why am I suffering of this disease? God, how could you possibly provide for my finances in this moment? God, why am I not getting along in my marriage? And I get it. I understand those questions. They make sense to us. But notice the man's answer to the question. Verse 11, he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes, and he said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and I washed and I received my sight. (laughs) Church, the man isn't fixated on the how. And and sure, he references what Jesus told him to do, but he first references Jesus himself. He says, the man called Jesus. All I know is that he shows up and he tells me what to do. And the next thing I know, I can see. I don't understand about the spit and the mud and the pool. I I have no clue about any of that. All I know is that when he showed up, everything changed. And friends, here's the principle. We often fixate on how or why. But what's important is who. What's important is who. We're going to see that as we continue this morning. We understand the neighbor's question. We can relate to that question. We've often asked that question ourselves. God, why is this happening? Why do I feel like this? It's a big deal to us. But church, I'm convinced to my core that when we understand who, that that perhaps the answer to the why and the how begin to fall by the wayside. Because when you're sitting at Jesus' feet, and when you're sitting in front of the one who makes blind people see, you understand what you really need to know is not the how or the why, but the who. You need to know him. (laughs) And and perhaps the neighbors kind of get it, because look what happens in verse 12. It says, they said to him, then where is he? (laughs) We'll go find him. We want to see him too. Maybe he'll do the same kind of thing for us. And he said, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, I just showed up and here he was. And now, I'm, and now I can see. But the neighbors, they, they start looking around and it dawns on them that the religious leaders might offer some help. And I think with good intention, they go to them. And so verse 13 says, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. They want to know what these guys think. I mean, these are the religious elite of the day. They're the ones who help them make sense of all things theological. And so it makes sense that they go to them. And to everyone's knowledge, here's the thing. There's not a single soul who's ever been born blind that now can see. This is a big deal. But leave it to our friends, the Pharisees, to ruin a good thing, right? See, Jesus, he healed the man on the Sabbath again. And they can't let it go. Verse 14, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And so rather than acknowledge the glory of the moment, the Pharisees launch an investigation. They do what they do. And to begin with, they get their blanket all wet and they set their sights on the blind man and they chuck it on him. 
They cast it in his direction. Look at verse 15. It says, So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And so they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And he said, He's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. Church, the Pharisees are clearly skeptical here. They, like the neighbors, are caught up in the how. They're wondering, how could this happen? How did this go down? And at first, some recognize how unlikely it would be for a sinner to do such a thing, to, to, to heal a man born blind. And yet, the majority can't get over that this was done on the Sabbath. And so it clearly made Jesus a sinner. These things didn't go together. And see, Pharisaical tradition prohibited healing on the Sabbath except in life-saving instances. And because the man was born blind, this clearly wasn't a life-saving measure. And their tradition also prohibited the kneading of bread. K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G. The kneading of bread. And here Jesus would have had to knead the mud in order to uh, knead the the dirt with the, the saliva to make the mud. And so clearly he was breaking the law in that instance as well. And so because clearly only one sent by God could heal a man born blind. And because clearly one sent by God would not do such a thing on the Sabbath, the Pharisees become convinced the whole thing is a hoax. It's a hoax. They, they just deny what's right there in front of them. That is, until they talk to the blind man's parents. Look at this. It says, the Jews, in verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but, now, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. Church, it's clear the Pharisees, now, now simply referred to as the Jews, they were a threatening bunch. You didn't really want the wet blanket to come at you, right? And the parents are, are wise, albeit they kind of chicken here in this moment, right? They, they know there's a hidden agenda. And so as they affirm what cannot be denied, this man, yes, is in fact their son. They know their son. And yes, this man was in fact born blind. They'd been there his whole life. And yes, in fact, he can tell you how many numbers you're holding up on your hand. He can see now. They don't deny that. But even as they, they don't avoid the obvious, they do avoid any sort of personal interpretation of the events. So that's risky. In fact, they're emphatic in putting the responsibility back on their son. They don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> it's no doubt the parents had experienced the shame of, of, of their son's blight for many years. They'd already distanced themselves from him perhaps as much as they could. Remember, they're being blamed as the ones who sinned, right? So this was a nightmare they had no intention of reliving. And so the Jews turned their back on the, the parents and they turned their attention back to this man. And, and this is where things get pretty exciting, I think. Notice his boldness 
here as we start to read the text. Sure, he'd experienced poverty, but he's no dummy. Look at verse 24. It says, So for the second time they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. In other words, prove God to be true. Agree with us. <laughs> That's a dangerous claim, isn't it? Verse 25. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see that's all I got. I was blind, now I see. I was blind, Jesus shows up, tells me what to do. I do what he says, and here I am. I got nothing else. The Pharisees, they're caught up in the why and the how. The man sticks to the what and the who. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen why do you want to hear it again? And notice the, the sarcasm, the tongue firmly in cheek here as he says, do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> what a great line. I love that. You think the Bible doesn't have anything funny in it? I think that's hilarious. This man knows the Pharisees have no intention of following Jesus. They hate Jesus. They've made that clear over and over and over. But he looks them square in the face. He says, you want to be his disciple too? Talk about bold. But he's so radically taken with this man and what he did. His whole life has been changed in a moment. And so he throws caution to the wind. He says, forget it. I'm tired of you guys. I'm going with him. This man who was once the scorn and ridicule, uh, scorn of, of the, the city, he was ridiculed, he was shamed. This man once born blind, he's the one that now sees and ironically, he sees better than the religious elite. He sees better than the Pharisees. In fact, he sees right through their hypocrisy. And he hits them right between the eyes, and they don't like it. <laughs> Look at verse 28. It says, And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Friends, they're still stuck on Moses, totally unwilling to see what Jesus has already demonstrated. Remember, we've talked about this in the Gospel of John. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the one who provides bread in the wilderness. Jesus is the one who calls forth water from the rock and, in fact, provides living water. Jesus is the one who brings light into dark places and overcomes it. He's better than Moses. <laughs> He's the new Moses. He's the Messiah. And so verse 30, the man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Right, guys? Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And church, notice this. This man began by referring to Jesus as simply the man called Jesus in verse 11. He didn't know him. He didn't have any encounter with him except for what he saw right in that moment. But then in verse 17, when he's asked, he says, well, he's at least a prophet. He's calling him the highest thing he could. He had, he had no notion of Jesus being the Messiah, but he says, that guy's legit. God's doing something there. And now here in these verses, he says, Clearly, he's from God. He's not just a prophet. He's from God. 
He's not a sinner. Sinners can't do what this man does. And the Pharisees go ballistic at this point. You can, you can see and smell and feel the spit flinging out of their mouths as they say this in verse 34. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Church, this man who'd just been set free from years of shame, caused by his blindness and society's expectations. This man now, at least according to the Jews, was cast right back into that place of shame. Into being an outcast and undesirable. Not even allowed into the synagogue, into the, the place of worship for the people. But as we sit there in the irony of that, we, we discover another principle. See, the the Pharisees experienced this uneducated pipsqueak standing up to them in bold faith, having encountered the life-changing power of Jesus. And all they can think about is their own display cases, their own office, you know, their diplomas, their pedigree, all the notes that, that tell them how great they are and how everybody wishes they could be like them. They're the cream of the crop. But with venom spewing from their pores, they demonstrate, and I'm going to summarize it like this, education isn't everything. Jesus is. Church, God isn't against education. In fact, I think education, especially theological education, is really important. There's a place for it. I'm not against it. But if we base our faith simply on what we know about Jesus instead of our experience with Jesus, we fall woefully short. The reality is, is at some point or another, we're confronted with Jesus, not as a concept, not as an abstract historical figure that, that lived 2,000 years ago, but we're confronted with this. Jesus, like He invited His disciples, invites us to be with Him so that He might send us into the world. He invites us to be with Him in personal experience. And here He's granted us the Holy Spirit in order to help us toward that end. We're going to talk about this in the Upper Room Discourse as we get into John here. John uh, uh, 13, 14, 15, and 16. It's going to be amazing. But church, this man born blind encountered Jesus and his life would never be the same. And so the educated and the powerful, they cast him out. Guess what? It doesn't matter. He's been with Jesus. He's been changed by Jesus, and he knows education isn't everything, but Jesus is. And so look what happens next. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him. Whoa. <laughs> And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Church, again, notice the progression of this man's faith and its present culmination. He, he first refers to Jesus as a man. And then he refers to him in verse 17 as a prophet. And then in 30 to 33, he says, clearly he's from God. 
But now, Jesus asks, do you believe in the Son of Man? In other words, do you believe in in the One who comes as the God-Man in order to save the world from its sins? Do you believe in the Messiah? And as the man affirms his desire to know more, he believes in the Son of Man. He says, well, who is He? Let Let me find Him. Jesus says these profound words to a man that, remember, was blind his whole life. He says, you've seen him. (laughs) This guy never saw anybody until he saw Jesus. You've seen him. And the one who stands with you is him, is he. Church, Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus illuminates the darkness. Jesus gives sight to the blind man, both physical and spiritual. And the man confesses his belief and he falls down in worship. <laughs> and church, as we witness the progression of this man's faith, we're reminded of yet another principle. See, sometimes belief comes in stages. Sometimes it comes in stages. And so be patient. Watch Jesus. And go where he leads. You know, sometimes we all get bent out of shape when, when God, we get all bent out of shape when God doesn't respond to our poverty immediately. You know, we give God a timeline. And maybe we don't, we're not bold enough to give Him the timeline specifically, but we've got it. You know, God, if you don't show up soon, I'm going to whatever. Church, remember, belief can come in stages. I love the example that Megan shared a bit ago, the, the man that they've been praying for. I think Christy's been praying for him too. Belief comes in stages. We met a man in, in the Middle East a few weeks ago. Same kind of thing. He wasn't ready yet, but he saw this man, Jesus, and he said, I think this guy has something to him. I want to know more. And so he agreed to take the New Testament and read it. Pray for him with me. Would you pray for this man that Megan referenced? Pray for, for this man in, in, in the Middle East. And Maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet sure, you know? You've been, you've been thinking about Jesus. You've been hearing him talked about, whether it's through the friend that brought you here or, or just coming to church. And you're drawn to him. There's some things about him that are pretty amazing. I mean, good grief. The guy that helps blind guys see, awesome, right? But you're not yet sure. Friends, I want to tell you, you have permission here to be in process. Keep watching. Keep looking. We're going to keep, keep our eyes on him in the study of John. We're going to keep studying. Go with us, and more importantly, go with Him. Because where Jesus will lead you, if you'll let Him, will be no less miraculous than Him healing a man born blind. Because you know where Jesus will lead you? He'll lead you to the cross. He'll lead you to death to your sin and new life, resurrection life. And the promise is rooted in His own resurrection. He'll lead you there. Notice how we end. Verses 39 to 41. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Church, when Jesus shows up, he, he displays the work of the Father. He brings glory out of poverty. That's all up to Him. But for us, there comes a point of decision. There does. 
And though Jesus in himself states, I've not come to condemn the world, he comes not to condemn the world, his presence does demand a decision. And see, we can either accept what he offers and we can see with his sight, or we can deny what he offers and be given over to that which we ask by denying him. We lose sight and we're condemned. And church, the principle is this, you can either admit your blindness and see according to Jesus, or you can pridefully claim your own ability to see and remain blind. The Pharisees illustrate they couldn't get past themselves. They couldn't do it. They couldn't get past their own pride and their own pedigree and their own power. But the blind man, he knew his place. He knew his poverty and he knew that when Jesus did what he did, he was totally at his mercy. And so he simply received what Jesus gave him. He went and washed in the pool and he was healed. And so what will be your decision here this morning? Will you admit your blindness? And will you become part of the display of God's glory? Or will you insist that you don't need Him? You don't need what He offers. You can take care of yourself, thank you very much. You can see just fine without Him. Church, Jesus is the light of the world. The darkness is strong today, amen? It is strong. It's pervasive. But good news Jesus has overcome the darkness. He's already done it. And so let Him take you by the hand and lead you from darkness to light. Let Him help you see. Charles Spurgeon once said, it's not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders Christ. It's our strength. It's not our darkness that hinders Christ. It's our supposed light that holds back His hand. Friends, let's be a part of God's display, not through our glory, but through our poverty. And in our poverty and through His grace, let's watch Him shine. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this amazing story, this amazing encounter, Jesus, that You had with this man born blind. Thank you for radically changing his life and demonstrating to us how you are the one who makes the blind see. And Lord, we confess to you this morning our blindness. We confess to you that without you, we cannot see clearly. Our vision is opaque. But with you, by your blood, by the power that you demonstrate in your resurrection glory, you send us your spirit who illuminates the gospel to us, who helps us to see, who illuminates life to us and helps us to see as you see Jesus. And we understand that, that now we see but a, but a reflection. One day we'll see fully and we'll see clearly, Lord. But in this moment, in these days, in our poverty, in our struggle, God, give us eyes to see what you're doing. And more importantly, God, give us eyes to trust you no matter what. And to sit at your feet and to eat from your table and to drink from your cup. Because, Lord, you are the bread of life. You are the living water. You're the one that says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and streams of living water will flow from within. You're the one who says, I am the light of the world. The darkness has no chance. And so may we walk with confidence, knowing that as long as you're with us, as long as you've got our hand, we can go with you wherever you lead and trust. It's going to be okay.
We love you, God. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please join in singing with me.